0: Hope everyone is doing well. Thank you, Elaine, for that wonderful time with the choir with worship, and it's good to have Ross on the keys. Isn't it great to have so many great musicians in our church? So when someone's on vacation, it just keeps going, and so we're excited. And Madison pulls double duty; she sings at both services, so it's good to have her in the choir. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we want you to feel right at home. Our mission here is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. And we are currently going through Luke's Gospel, and we've been in the study for about a year. And someone asked me, how long is it going to take to get through Luke? I was like, probably about two years so at this rate. So it's uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying the study. And just a little uh, preview for Wednesday night. If you guys haven't been to Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Nehemiah. And it's open for the whole church. We're going verse by verse through Nehemiah and talking about how God wants to rebuild the broken walls in our life personally, in our community, and in our world. So this time, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts for his word. Father, we thank you for that song, Bow the Knee. And God, spiritually, we want to get our hearts in that position, to bow our hearts before you. And Father, we just know that you're good. And we know a lot's going on in our church, our community, our world. God, we thank you uh, that you're working in spite of all our challenges God, this morning uh, we lift up Steve Shaw as he's in the heart tower at mission and doing better. We pray you would continue to bring healing and recovery on him. For all those in our congregation who have been through surgeries recently, we pray for healing on their bodies and you'd strengthen them. Father, we do lift up our country again, that you would just bring the healing balm of Gilead, that you would bring peace to our nation, to our country. And we just pray that you would work in spite of everything going on. And you would bring good even out of bad situations. So, Lord, as we open up your word, speak to our hearts. Help us to understand your word. And we pray that we'd be forever changed because of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 if you want to go and turn there. As you're turning there, uh, how many sports fans do we have here? Okay, I got a, at least the, the women and a lot of the men are woken up now if you've fallen asleep in church. Um, there there's a saying in sports about who is the greatest it's known as who's the goat g o a t greatest of all time and in basketball the the conversation if you've watched any sports is between michael jordan and lebron james just out of curiosity how many of you would say michael jordan's the greatest of all time all right any lebron fans out there lebron's the greatest all right one two lebron fans it, it's a it's a close race because they, they have very good scoring averages per year. They're very good with defense. Uh, they're very well-rounded. And really, it's hard to decide who's the greatest because there's different eras of basketball. Jordan played during the era where you could throw someone down and not get fouled. We live in the era where if you breathe on someone, they call a foul. So it's it's hard really to judge based upon statistics. But throughout our culture, we have a drive for greatness, Some of you love traveling, and part of traveling is to discover the greatest places around the world to experience the cuisine, the culture, uh, the people in the community. Some of you like cars, and you want to drive great machines and experience the roar of the engine and over 500 horsepower. Some of you like great relationships, and for some of you ladies, your dream was to marry that great knight in shining armor. And uh, right away on that white stallion to happily ever after. We all want great things in life. So the question is, is it wrong to desire great things or greatness? Is there anything wrong with that? We're going to address that question. So I want you guys to sit on the edge of your pew and take a deep breath of anticipation because we're going to enter in this passage where we may discover something different than what we've been taught before about greatness. Greatness. So we're going to read a lengthy passage, verses 46 through 62, and Jesus is going to frame it what greatness is and does and what it looks like. And out of that, there's going to be some illustrations he's going to give us. So in Luke's gospel, starting in verse 46 of chapter nine, it says, then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, before we read verse 47, we have to frame the context. Jesus had just talked about he's getting ready to die. And I find it very interesting that he's talking about his death and now they're jockeying for position who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. This would be almost similar, maybe not quite the same, as if someone's on their deathbed and the siblings are fighting over the will. How would that make you feel if you were the person that they're arguing who's going to take the position, the prominence? All right, verse 47, then Jesus, perceiving in the thought of their heart, he took a little child and set him by him. And he said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. You might want to underline that phrase. He who's least among you will be great. So Jesus gives us an illustration through Luke. And this may seem like change of subject, but This is an example of someone who has no idea about greatness. Now, John answered, verse 49, and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for he that is not against us is on our side. Verse 51. Now, it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went off to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. May God bless his word. So today we're going to talk about what greatness is and what it's not. And we're going to ask a big question. Is it wrong to desire greatness is that wrong or what what should we think about it a few opening remarks and this is your listening guide jesus never rebuked the disciples desire to be great if you look at verses 46 through 48 jesus does not say do not desire to be great Um, and the thing about the disciples is they wanted greatness and we find in luke chapter 22 if you're taking notes right before jesus dies they're arguing again who's the greatest So here's the thing. We all have an innate desire for greatness or great things. But is that necessarily in and of itself wrong? I surveyed the first service and most people said no. Um, There was kind of, you know, we're like, let's talk about it. And I said, well, it's yes and no. It's not wrong to desire to be great unless it's for yourself. And that's when it's desire. A lot of times if you've grown up in church... Um, People have rebuked the desire for greatness. But Jesus doesn't rebuke it. He instead rebukes the pathway for greatness. The disciples wanted to be great by the worldly ways. By power, prestige, position. But Jesus says, listen, if you want to be great, you've got to think about greatness differently. And greatness in the world's ways is building up yourself. But greatness in God's side is building up others. So there's a big difference. Um... Back in 1831, a French writer, Alexis de Tocqueville, um, some of you have heard this article, wrote about America. And this really, this really blew me away. Uh, I'm going to read the full quote. I've got a partial quote on the screen. Um, they were, this writer was seeking, why is America great? And the writer said, I sought for the greatness of the United States and her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, her fertile fields, her boundless forests, And it was not there. I sought it for in her rich minds, her vast world commerce, her public school system, her institutes of higher learning. And it was not there. I looked for it in her Democratic Congress and her matchless Constitution. And it was not there. Now, listen to this phrase. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power? America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. How many have ever heard that quote before? And when I read that, it's like, wow, because the world standards think of greatness in all those lists he talked about from education and wealth and prestige. And this French writer said, no, it's not in any of those things. It's in righteousness. It's in the way God thinks of greatness. So that gives us a little clue. But Jesus did not rebuke the disciples' desire to be great, but rather the pathway. And if you think the way the world looks at us is different, it's true. Have you ever thought the world thinks of us as kind of crazy, crazy Christians? Some of you have read A.W. Tozer, and he has this quote that just blew me away. I want to read it to you. And this is the way the world thinks of us as sometimes crazy Christians. Tozer said, a real Christian is an odd number anyways. He feels supreme love for one he has never seen. He talks familiar, familiar every day with someone he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. He empties himself in order to be full admits he is wrong so he can be right. He goes down in order to get up. He's strongest when he's the weakest. He's richest when he's the poorest. He dies so he can live. Forsakes in order to have. He gives away so he can keep. Sees the invisible. Hears the inaudible. And knows that which passes knowledge. So when the world looks at us and they see us talking to someone that's not there. It makes them think of your... When you remember childhood, any of you have that pet friend... That stuffed animal. Gabriel's friend is Charlie. And you know the thing about a stuffed animal. You talk to the stuffed animal. And it's almost the stuffed animals there. So when the world looks at the Christian. They're like who are you talking to? I don't see anyone. Who are you praying to? Who are you living for? And it just seems total countercultural. So if you'll notice on your listening guide. What is the worldly way of being great? Well the worldly way of being great. Is for people to know your name. If you're popular. If you're famous, that's it to be healthy and wealthy. That's the American dream, right? Chase after prosperity to be famous in the world's eyes. And these things in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong, but it should never be the pursuit. If God makes you healthy, wealthy and wise, amen. But that's not a pursuit. That's not the Christian dream. It may be the American dream. What is it to be great in God's eyes? It means to know and to be known by God, to have a relationship with him, to live righteously and to walk in wisdom and to be famous, as the song says, in your father's eyes. That's greatness. So reframing the question, Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples' desire for greatness. It's just their pathway. The disciples are wanting greatness the way the world thought of greatness. But Jesus said, you're thinking of greatness wrong. So today, that was just introduction I want to give to you three truths about greatness that may change the way you think about it. It may change like I'm more leaning on the American dream, but now I want to see how Jesus views greatness. And it's very different than what the world system teaches. Number one, the first truth. Those who are humble are great. Those who are humble are great. Now, would the world say that? Look at verse 48. Jesus says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and receives him who sent me. Now, my children have went back, but I was going to bring one on stage. And if you think about a child, they're very different than the way adults think. So what can we learn about a child from greatness? Anything you guys can think of. I want you to look on your list. There's five truths we can learn about children. And these are not true for every child. There are some exceptions. But as a whole, I think you guys will get this. The first one is trusting. Have you ever noticed how children, when they're little, it changes when they become teenagers, parents. But when they're little, if you notice how trusting they are of mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, so trusting. It's sad when you see a child that doesn't trust his or her parents. There's something that happened there. But children as a whole are trusting. They're willing to ask for help. You ever notice how grandparents, when you come and you're watching your grandchild or great-grandchild They're not afraid to ask for something. Food, I want a drink. Have you ever thought if we had the same stance towards God, if we weren't afraid to talk to God like children talk to us, how much different would our prayer life be? Number three, they're loving. The universal position, and you guys can get this, when daddy, when grandpa, grandma come home and your child or grandchild sees you, what's the first thing they do? They throw up their arms. Daddy, grandma, grandpa. And it's like, you think about that. Isn't that not like a universal symbol of worship and surrender, just holding up, acceptance? So when Jesus has a child and said, if you want to be great, look at this child. It's really based upon your relationship with God above anything else. And if we would be like that with God, every time we enter into God's presence, we're just with him. Just like a a grandfather, the grandchild, daddy, grandpa. Another thing that we often don't think about is, number four, serving. You ever notice how kids are so willing to help until they become teenagers? Just kidding. But, you know, when they're little, I've noticed the little they are, the more they want to help. My two boys, Lincoln, age two, Gabriel, age three, they love to help me vacuum. And they're there to help. They're there to serve. They're excited. And if I'm honest with you, I I enjoy them helping, but it slows me down. So I'm like, all right, help me out. All right, thank you. Go play. But the father, you know, we could say we slow him down because he could do everything with a spoken word, but he uses us. He could just speak the word and the worlds are created, but he uses us in our time and space. Many of you love studying about Napoleon and other great generals and emperors in history. It was said that Napoleon, who was short of stature, was riding his horse And his horse kind of got stirred up out of control. And one of the lowly privates in the army grabbed the horse, took control, and helped Napoleon get back, stabilize. And Napoleon looked at the lowly private and said, thank you, captain. And the guy immediately went into the captain's tent. And the other generals were like, what are you doing here? You're just a lowly private. He said, Napoleon said, I'm a captain. And if he said, I'm a captain, I'm a captain is it interesting how when you serve God, he often promotes his servants. But when you seek to be served, you're often demoted. It's interesting how it works in the kingdom. One more aspect that I had to really think about, and we're still talking about children here, we can learn, is forgiving. You ever notice that as adults we're so slow to forgive, but as a child you mess up royally. You say, I'm sorry, and they've forgotten about it. As little children. As they get older, it starts changing. But little children, they they forgive you. And I was studying about Abraham Lincoln. He had this arch rival. And his arch rival was Stanton, Edwin Stanton. And there's a picture there. And by the way, men, this is No Shave November. I'm not participating, but if you are, maybe you can get Stanton's beard. So Edward Stanton was his rival. He called Abraham Lincoln the original gorilla. How would that make you feel if you got called a gorilla? But you know what? When Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States, he selected Stanton as his secretary of war. And the reason why was he was the best man for the job. He didn't allow himself to have his feelings hurt, but he was forgiving. And I want to read to you what Stanton wrote or what Stanton said at Lincoln's funeral. When Lincoln passed away, Edward Stanton, who had formerly called him a gorilla, said... There lies the most perfect ruler of men the world has ever seen. His opinion changed. So when Jesus said, if you want to be great, you look at this child, those are some things that come to mind. How children are loving and forgiving and they're willing to move forward. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be willing to do that. So a few thoughts on humility because the church, we get so confused on humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And so many times we as Christians try to be humble. Did you know trying to be humble, like let's say someone compliments you, like Brother Ross, great job on the piano. And Ross is like, oh, I have nothing. And I really didn't practice at all. And this is nothing. I mean, he, Ross wouldn't say that. But in the effort, I can use Ross as an example because he's good at this. But in the effort to humble yourself, you're actually prideful about being humble. You ever notice that? So whenever you guys say, Pastor, I enjoy the message, and I'm like, oh, I'm nothing, I'm just a worm, I'm just a rat. That's crazy. It's okay to say thank you, God is good. Um, so as Christians, we struggle. On one side, we have the worldly definition of power, prestige. On the other side, we, we shift to false humility, which is another form of pride. Be yourself. Allow God to work for, through you. As Christians, we're so cautious that sometimes we, we inadvertently walk into pride without knowing it. Humility is showing kindness and temperance towards others who are different. Look at verse forty nine. When you look at verse forty nine, it's like what's going on here. It says that. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us. And Jesus said, listen, don't forbid him. He who is not against us is for us. Have you ever noticed how Christians, if we have other Christians that are a little different, we can start to compare? And, uh, you know, sometimes it's this person used this translation of the Bible, this person doesn't use this translation. This person has this worship style, this person has another worship style. Um, and it's funny, as denominations, we often think we're, we're better than other denominations. You ever notice that? Those crazy charismatics. Which, by the way, I love charismatics. you know, Or whatever it may be. Those holy, chosen, frozen over here. And we throw out these sayings. And when Jesus says, listen, you're forgetting we're all on the same team. Everyone that claims the name of Christ, born again Christian, we're all all on the same team. God has one family, just many locations. You ever thought about that? And by the way, he's he's got Christians in heaven. He's got Christians down here. There are people that have went on. So we have in... In in heaven, there's people that are there that have been saved and gone to be with the Lord. And there's people on earth, one family, two locations, but many locations. We're all over the place. So here's the thing. As a church, we should never be in competition with another church. If the church down the road is successful, we celebrate them because, listen, we're on the same team. If someone is struggling, we reach out and help because we're on the same team. That's a kingdom mindset. One family, many locations. Amen. Amen. So, before we go into point two, humility in the sight of God is measured by the greatness of how you're willing to serve. So Jesus says, listen, if you want to be great, look at this child. Look at this child that's just arms wide open. Here I am, daddy. That's greatness, not trying to make yourself great, but trying to make others great. Humility is not about building yourself up, it's about building others up. You see the difference there. So, wanting greatness is not wrong. It's, it's, it's the, the pathway and it's the motive. Is it for building myself up or is it for building others up? So, on your listening guide, I wrote this famous phrase that's often been used by theologians throughout time In essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty but in all things love. So in other words, the essentials are this, salvation and the gospel. What you believe about Jesus is salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. Is the Bible God's word? Is Jesus the Son of God, the Trinity? Those are fundamental things. We've got to agree on those. The side issues, what you believe about spiritual gifts, what you believe about eternal security. We have stances, but those are all side issues. So let's not get caught up on side issues. Amen? My father, who's teaching uh, the 11 o'clock Sunday school class downstairs, has this saying let the main thing be the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. He always taught me that. So I've listened to my dad's voice. All right, number two. And the first point flows into two examples. So the whole thing's about humility. Number two, those who desire to see the law saved are great. So if, if it's not all about me, humility, part of the outflow of that is if it's not about me, it's about others. I want to see other people come to salvation. You look at verses 51 to 56. Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And you ask why? Jesus was getting ready to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's why he had set his face. And as he was heading toward Jerusalem, the Samaritans said, we're not going to accept you. And there's a few things on your listening guide to explain why, but basically they did not like each other. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They had different politics. They had different religious ideas. They had different places of worship. And because of that, they were enemies. Does that remind you of watching the news today? How people hate on each other because they have different ideas? And what Jesus did, I love it. This is something we can think about. Did Jesus rebuke the Samaritans or take it personally? No, he just kept on his way. So don't take insults personally because not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to like your faith. But you keep on the mission that God has sent you. You keep moving forward. You notice it says they went on to another village. But notice James and John's response. James and John said, Jesus, do you want us to ask fire to come down from heaven and consume these people as Elijah did? And Jesus said, listen, I didn't come to kill people. I come to save people. I didn't come to destroy lives. I came to build up lives. As the same, as a follower of Christ, we're not to tear people down. We're to build people up. And I really believe if we lift the light of Jesus high, the darkness will be pushed back. A lot of times we get it wrong. We spend more time cursing the darkness. And people are just like, I don't want to, you're so negative. I think if we spent more time lifting up the light, the darkness would be pushed back by itself. So I think as Christians... The answer to everything is Jesus and the gospel. And, you know, if we'd spend less time cursing the darkness and more time lifting up Jesus, guess what? The light of the world will push back the darkness. Amen. So James and John were known as the sons of what? The sons of thunder. (laughs) And isn't it interesting? And don't don't point the person next to your spouse. If someone has a temper, God can refine that and redeem that. So all of a sudden, John, the sons of, one of the sons of thunder, becomes the apostle of love. See, the thing about a temper, a temper can be something good if it's redeemed. It turns into the passion that lashes out. Instead, it turns into a passionate love for others. So whatever you struggle with, if you give it to God, he can redeem it and use it for his glory. Paul said it like this, in my weakness, God's strength becomes evident. So when you're weak, guess what? He's strong. But there's another side application. He said, do you want us to ask fire to come down? James and John said, like Elijah. Isn't it interesting how we spiritualize our shortcomings? We like to throw a Bible verse out and say, you know, I know I went off on you, but that's just how I'm I'm wired. Or I'm so sorry I let you have it, but I was just trying to tell you the truth. If it wasn't the truth in love. So be careful about attaching Jesus something that he has nothing to do with. And the church, if we're truthfully, all of us have struggled with it. We we have this weakness, but if we throw a Bible verse out or God a Jesus card, it makes everything seem better. And this is kind of what James and John, Elijah did it. Even though Elijah had a far different ministry than what they were doing. So be careful about throwing the Jesus card out there. So something about the Samaritans is... I want to bring to you, those who are the hardest to love usually need it the most. You ever notice that in life? The people who are hard to love, they usually need it the most. A while back, um, I I worked with a fellow pastor, and I really don't have other words to say, um, but he he was another staff member at a church, a pretty sizable church, and he just wasn't pleasant to be around. You ever met a pastor that was a jerk? And, And seriously, he was just that way. And people had left the church just because of his personality. He was a driven young guy, but just unpleasant. He had great ambition, but horrible people skills at the time. And uh, in, in this particular church, he happened to be my uh, supervisor in one particular ministry, and I remember just having to bite my teeth like, "This guy is just a jerk, but I, I'm just going to show love. I'm going to be there. So fast forward, that ministry uh, comes to the end of that season. And Lord, down the road, just allowed, wanted, just put it on my heart to give him a phone call and just say, Listen, I'm praying for you. I'm hearing great things about your ministry. You know, kill them with kindness, in other words. I picked up the phone. I did not want to, did not feel like it. I'm like, This has to be God because I don't want to talk to this guy again. So I picked it up, called him up. And it's interesting how God used that. I felt relieved in my soul. Like, I, I felt I had truly forgiven the guy for how he treated me. But what was interesting, a week later after that phone call, Uh, He wanted to talk to me, and he basically said, I'm sorry for the way I acted. I'm not the same person. God's been working on me, and it was insecurity that brought about me acting the way I did to people in the church. And that just brought to my mind this passage that when people are hard to love, it's usually because they need it. And you can fight fire with fire like the disciples wanted to do in this case, or you can follow Christ's example, kill them with kindness, show them love. Because if people are lashing out, it usually means their heart is hurting. And we have to be mindful of that as Christians. Amen. Number three, those who proclaim and live for the king and his kingdom are great. Those who proclaim and live for the king and his kingdom are great. In verses 57 and following, uh, they're journeying to Jerusalem. And they have all these people that say, Jesus, I'll follow you. And one person wants to say, I, I, my, my dad is aging, so I need to stay around in case he dies. Someone else says, I've got to say goodbye to the people back home. And basically nothing's wrong with taking care of your family or you know, being a sociable person. But what was wrong is they were saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, but all of these take higher priority. And all these examples, Jesus said, listen, you have to follow me. I have to be number one. Following me doesn't mean you don't take care of your family or you don't have friends. It just means I have to be the highest priority in your life. You can't follow excuses because I'm on the way to the cross. And if you think it's going to be comfortable and elegant, you've got to remember foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I don't have a home. You know, you can follow me, but listen, it's going to be tough. And that's the thing it is for us as Christians. We follow Jesus, but it's not always glamorous. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's taking up your cross, right, and following him. That's the call. So when I look at these stories, I want to focus on verse 60. Jesus said, go and preach the kingdom of God. So as we follow him and what we're seeking after greatness in God's eyes, it's being humble. It's putting others first and it's proclaiming that Jesus has a purpose and a plan for our world today. And you look at verse 62, he said, uh, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, he said, you're not fit for the kingdom. Any farmers in here out of curiosity raised on a farm? All right, a few of you. I'm not a farmer, but I've been told that if you're plowing, you have to look at a fixed object out in the field because you need a point of reference because a plow, a lot of times, either the horse or... Whatever, if it's a modern machine, it can go out of alignment and you can plow crooked rows. So the idea is that fixed object helps you to plow straight rows and also helps you stay on the path. And what Jesus is saying is if I'm not your first priority, you can say you're going to follow me, but you're going to go off the pathway. So you have to keep your eyes fixed on me because Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. And if you don't stay focused, what happens you plow crookedly. As as Baptists, we say, you backslide, you go off the path. So if you're plowing crooked rows, in verse 62, the application would be this. Get your eyes fixed back on Jesus. If you got your hand to the plow, meaning you're doing God's work, stay fixed and focused on him. Amen. A lot of us enjoy Chuck Swindoll listening to him. And he brought up the question. What do you do if you have major challenges? A lot of us will say, you know, I want to be great. I want to do great things for God, as you talked about. I want to be humble. I want to put others first. I want to share Christ. But Timothy, you don't understand my struggles. You don't understand what I'm going through. Swindoll composed a really good list of people who had great adversities. And the adversity, instead of making them less than, it caused them to rise up to greatness that the world still talks about, of people who are great. Swindoll says, Cripple him, and you have a Sir Walter Scott. Lock him in a prison cell, and you have a John Bunyan. Bury him in the snows of Valley Forge, and you have a George Washington. Raise him in abject poverty, and you have an Abraham Lincoln. Subject him to bitter religious persecution, and you have a Benjamin Disraeli. Strike him down with infantile paralysis, and you have a Franklin D. Roosevelt. Burn him so severely in a schoolhouse that the doctors say he will never walk again. And you have a Glenn Cunningham who in 1934 set the world record for running a mile in four minutes and 6.7 seconds. Deafen a genius composer and you have a Beethoven. Have him or her born in a black society filled with racial discrimination and you have a Booker T. Washington at Harriet Tubman a Marian Anderson, or a George Washington Carver. Call him a slow learner, stupid, and uneducatable, and you have an Albert Einstein. So here's the thing. We can say we have limitations, but if I read my Bible correctly, Jesus tells us through his word that when we're weak, that's when he's strong. So instead of using your weakness as a, an excuse and a crutch, let us lay our weaknesses before him and remember the words of Christ. If you want to be great. Those who are humble. Are the greatest. Those who desire to see the lost saved are great. And those who proclaim and live for the king. And his kingdom are great. Can I get an amen. So if we want to summarize this into one sentence. I know we've covered a lot of scripture today. But in one sentence it would be this. The pathway to greatness. Is thinking more. About Jesus and others. And less about ourselves. So let us walk out here today thinking greatness is not bad, but instead of using my strengths to build up myself and my, my my desires, I'm going to use my strengths to build up others. See folks, humility is not being unaware of your strengths. Humility is being aware of your strengths and using your strengths to build up others. A lot of times we think as Christians, if we think we're good at something, we're prideful, not the case. Humility is knowing where God has blessed you. But you know the source and you know the reason. It's not for me. It's for him and them. It's for God and others. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you've given everyone here at Arden First Baptist great strengths and abilities. But Lord, help us walk out of here knowing that greatness in God's eyes is not measured in how much we have in our bank account. Or how much we're known by name, name recognition, or how much, whatever it may be. But help us walk out of here today knowing that greatness in the sight of God is serving him like a little child. Loving him like a little child. Arms wide open. Daddy, daddy, help us walk away with that little child embedded in our mind of what greatness is and what it does. Father, forgive us where we have been prideful. We realize as humans... Often we use our strengths to build up ourselves. We use it as a competition with other believers, even as James and John did. And we're sorry for that. Help us to be reminded that we're one family, many locations. And God, this morning, we want to take time to pray for our churches around us, Lord. We want to pray for Arden Presbyterian, that you would bless them. We want to pray for Biltmore Church, that you would bless them. God, we want to pray for the Methodist church down the street and the the charismatic church. Lord, any church that names the name of Christ, we pray you'd bless them, help them continue to fill the mission. And Lord, we ask and pray that you would help us to seek after greatness, not for our own self, but for Christ and for his story and his glory. As we continue to pray, the believers continue to pray. If there's one here that you've never received the greatest one of them all, Jesus Christ in your life every week, We give you that chance to make Jesus Lord and Savior. So right where you're sitting, if you have never received Jesus, say a prayer like this. Jesus, I realize I've never given my life to you as Lord and as Savior. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. You were buried and you rose again. And Jesus, I want to give my life to you. Please forgive me of all my sins. I turn from them and I turn to you. And I want to seek after greatness, greatness in your sight, loving and serving you and others. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. We love you and we give you thanks and praise. And all God's children said, Amen. This time, if you'll stand, we're going to have our hymn of response.